You are indeed great, O Lord, and great is your Son. We pray that your greatness shows through in the revelation of this, your holy word, proclaimed for your people this Lord's day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I feel like we're coming to the end of a journey this morning. We're still in the book of Romans, but we've tarried long in Romans chapter 9. So many subjects to consider, so many references to the scriptures of the old covenant. And so we come again, Paul makes full circle and brings around the issue of Israel. And so he'll take up that again and really throughout the next two chapters. And so I'm going to read this morning, again I'll begin in verse 22, I'll read to the end of the chapter, which is verse 33. And so Paul writes this to the Romans. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people." who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. He will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness? Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. But as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Father, in Jesus' name, open to us the deep meaning of this, your holy word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so what's all this talk of a stumbling stone, rock of offense. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will be put to shame. Who believes on a stumbling stone? Who believes on a rock? Apparently we do. So we come to the end of this chapter, and he notes once again that some of the teaching of Christ Some of the principles and message of the gospel of Christ are offensive to those to whom it is preached. It has always been that way. And certainly to the Jews, which we'll cover at length this morning. As we come to the end of this chapter, we see a new concept introduced into the passage. We see how the apostle drove the conversation by introducing Old Testament clues prophetic references. He spoke of Jacob and Esau and Pharaoh, if you remember. He spoke of Isaac and Ishmael and Abraham. 
Rebecca, spoke of all these things and referred us to all of the scriptures pertaining to the elect, to the so-called remnant, which we labored over last week. So Old Testament clues, prophetic references to what lay ahead for the Jewish people. I hope that we have eyes to see that his logic, his scholarship, is inescapable, and it must be because it's divinely inspired. Among all the nations and peoples of the earth, the Jews had every advantage with regard to recognizing the Messiah when he came. They had the writings from thousands of years in the past, preserved for their edification and for ours. They had all the types and shadows of the sacrificial system, the Lamb of God for one, the blood of the Lamb for another, all of these types and shadows pointing to Christ. Yet, as we may all tend to do, we allow personal prejudices to affect our judgment on crucial issues. Friends, there are times when we have to learn to change our minds. It is not a weakness. Ultimately, it's a strength. Ultimately, it's the ultimate strength. We hold close to our personal opinions and popular expectations. And we resent it when somebody argues them with us. We resent it more when in the midst of the argument we realize that they're right and we're wrong. Humility is so much more easily done than thought about. For the Jews of Paul's day, the presence of Christ, friends, the gospel message, the insistence upon faith, the invitation to the Gentiles of all people, and then finally the specter of the cross itself were so unexpected and so vile and egregious to people who thought they were saved by being born a son of Abraham. The facts of his birth, his Life, the ministry, the message of Christ, as the apostle has so expertly laid it out from the Old Testament scriptures, made the case for the gospel and the identity of the Savior like none other. But for the experts of the day, friends, the priests, the scholars, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, losing the argument as to the way of salvation was not a path that they were willing to travel. It was not a conversation they were willing to concede. And so for them, the prophecy of Christ rang true, where he says, have you not read it in the scriptures? Have you not read in the scriptures? One place he said, it is they that testify of me. In, in Nazareth, at his own home synagogue, he read from Isaiah and said, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they hated him for it. And so Matthew wrote Jesus' words, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes from Psalm 118. He just readily quotes from the scriptures. He's bathed in the wisdom of them. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will not be taken from you and given to, or rather the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, he will be ground to powder. Peter made the proclamation a little more personal when he said to the Sanhedrin, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders. You were supposed to be building something, and this was the capstone. But the capstone was rejected by the builder. 
and that stone has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other name. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, he said. Reject all you want. It doesn't change the fact. And so those of us who took the path of faith found that it was far more painless to fall and be broken than to be fallen upon and be pulverized. I've always found it instructive that the very next verse from Matthew says this. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. How perceptive. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they saw him as a prophet. Politics will always get in the way, one way or another, for for good or evil. I hope we do not become so clueless as they. In other words, the hearers of of his teaching, friends, were not stupid. They were only stubborn. It's called pride. It's a horrific thing. It's the thing that keeps us from truth. It's the thing that keeps us from seeing God as he is in the life and death and resurrection of his son. They knew that Jesus referred to them. They could see that the others saw his credentials, perhaps not of Messiah, but at least of a prophet. They were incrementally coming to an understanding of who he was. It should become instructive to us how strictly we hold to our own agendas and talking points. Friends, you'll hear me go against talking points all the time because you know why? They're not original, and I'm fearful that people aren't thinking for themselves. Don't give me headlines and talking points. Digest them. Understand what you're saying. Whatever it is, whatever subject we're talking about, it's a disadvantage in internal matters or eternal matters to be too heavily invested in temporal groupthink. I would like you to know and to remember that the greatest statesmen historically are among the worst theologians. And I found that good pundits are generally poor preachers. Be careful of mixing the two. You can get wisdom in a lot of different places, but an understanding of the Word of God, that, generally speaking, won't come through the news media. It would behoove us at this time to consider just exactly what's meant by a stumbling stone. As you may well imagine, the concept is derived from an actual stone along a pathway. You're walking along quite well. Oops, you trip. A stone is out of place. It's heaved up out of place by the forces of nature. A paver, a rock in the pathway caused you to stumble. It's used always metaphorically in the scriptures. They're not talking about an actual stone. In English, the word refers to, and this is um, from uh, the Heritage Dictionary, an obstacle or impediment. That's what stumbling stone is, an obstacle or impediment. In other words, something intentionally or unintentionally put in our way to trip us up. Friends, believers are admonished not to place such things in the way of other people. Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone around his neck, another stone, and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. (laughs) Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom that stumbling block comes. Don't cause your brother to stumble. The word in Greek, however, comes from a more unsuspecting place. The word is scandalon. Sound like anything? Sounds like scandal to me or scandalous, right? 
Scandalon, by definition, is the name of the part of a trap to which the bait is attached. This is a direct quote from the lexicon. Hence the trap or snare itself, and it gives Romans 11.9 as an example, and so we read. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, a scandalon, and a recompense to them. I think we can see that stumbling blocks have both a good and a bad connotation. They are a trap. They cause our otherwise smooth understanding of things to be tripped up. They may cause a weaker brother or sister to be tripped up, to question their faith, to give them an artificial cause to suspect what they thought was certain. And then we have the Jews, the whole Jewish nation, the favored nation of all nations of the earth. And they are given the promises and the covenants. The prophets are sent to them. They are the custodians of the oracles of God. That's the word. And yet God himself causes them to miss a beat, to slow their progress. I have laid a stone in Zion. He causes them to take another look at just what it takes to appease a holy God. Is it adherence to an impossible set of statutes and ordinances? Or is it surrender? Is it a giving up? Is it a revelation of personal sin and ineptitude? Is it a plea for help, a prayer for a savior? A person on whom we may simply rest and cast our cares upon. Have you ever considered that to have saving faith in Christ, you must lose faith in yourself? Both have to happen at the same time. The whole, the, the essential understanding, the way you know the gospel has been preached as, is because when you've preached it, you've revealed two things to the hearer. You've revealed himself, and you've revealed the only savior of himself, and that he's not his own savior. You've re- revealed to him his sin, which is his need for the savior. That's what the gospel unlocks for us. And it's very unique in this. No other bit of information no other story does it like the gospel now i can think i think we can see that in a stumbling blocks it's not always a trick it's not always given by a trickster or an evil person or satan or a haughty brother who thinks he knows everything and he trips you up it's not always a bad thing it may be used to slow us up to get our attention in our passage it's god who inserts the stone in our path he says behold i lay in zion a stumbling stone a rock of offense So even though Christ was a stumbling block, he, like all the other advantages of the Jewish nation, was given to them first. He was given to them first. He was born in Israel. He was sent to preach and to heal and to save his own Jewish countrymen. Hence, what we just read, I lay in Zion, which is Israel, a a stone of stumbling. It seems to me like the Jews of old, there are so many things that believers take for granted and are certain of that with a little further investigation may find we're not reliable beliefs at all. And boy, some of those fell on the rock of Romans 9, I can say. I would also say that we ought not to be too secure in our judgments about certain beliefs and safeguards that seem to us so obvious. That's precisely what's being wrung out in this passage. For centuries, it seemed like being Jewish, being born of Hebrew stock and parentage, was a sure sign of being favored by God. For centuries, that was thought, even by the other nations. 
by all those who saw the magnificent temple in Jerusalem, first built by Solomon, renovated by Zerubbabel after the Babylonian era and rebuilt in the time of Jesus by Herod the Great. That great temple, one of the wonders of the ancient Roman world. For centuries, it seemed like being Jewish was a great thing. It brought you closer to God. And you know what? It was. It was. But in and of itself, it wasn't saving. It seems to me that like the Jews of old, there are so many things that believers take for granted. Blood relation to Abraham was all that was needed, they thought. So the first thing John the Baptist said to them is, don't think to say to yourself, we're sons of Abraham, for he'll raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. And so the Jew on the street didn't question where he was going into eternity. I had a Catholic friend that said that to me once. He said, very famously, in our family, <laughs> he said, well, you know, if you're Catholic, you're practically guaranteed to go to heaven. I said, really? So all you can do is be Catholic? He goes, yeah, you just get anointed and you go. I mean, even by Catholic standards, I don't think he was completely correct, was he, Tom? <laughs> that's a yes or no, not a speech. <laughs> well, that's how the Jews felt. You're practically guaranteed to go to heaven. Um, blood relationship didn't quite do it. Paul in this chapter shows that salvation is always by faith. God chooses the person he'll save, and he chooses the means of salvation, which is faith. The two go together. And this is what Paul is not ashamed to point out. Salvation was not reserved for one nation, but for all who believed. And from the beginning, it was God's design to save only a remnant of the Jews. You think they would have got a clue when Naam and the Syrian came to Elisha, right? Wouldn't you think that would have been a clue? Remember, after he got saved, he didn't want to go and do what the prophet said, wash in the water seven times. Ah, we have better water in Syria. He was a patriot. It was a country. Who could blame him? And he was right. The Jordan's a muddy thing, swampy sometimes. We have better water than that. Look at that muddy water over there. And the servant said, could it hurt to just do what he said? You came all this way. He goes in, comes up seven times. He's perfectly clean. He's not Jewish, but he went to the Jewish prophet See how they knew Israel was special? He goes to the Jewish prophet, and then if you read carefully, you realize what he did. He took containers of dirt. That meant he was switching gods. He didn't have all his theology right yet. God's the God of all the dirt. But really, pagans really believed that the gods were geographically constrained. A god who was the god of Greece might not be the god of Macedonia or another um, province of the Roman Empire. You see what I mean? So he gathered up dirt. So he, in his view, he's taken home the, the dirt with which that God is sovereign over. Pharaoh found out God was sovereign over all the dirt. But um, I'm sure as time went on, he, he got his theology corrected. But you think they might have said, you know, guy wasn't even Jewish. And he believes in God. Um, Paul, in this chapter, shows that salvation is always by faith. It was not reserved for one nation. And from the beginning, it was God's design to save only a remnant of the Jews and a remnant of the other nations as well. What a surprise. And it was a surprise to most. Paul laments the unfaithfulness of his Jewish brethren at the beginning of the chapter. He goes on to explain that God was yet faithful and trustworthy with regard to who would be saved. You see, so many Jews, he's claiming, are not saved... They were saying, then God can't be true to his word. And he went back and showed him he was true to his word. True to his word with Abraham. True to his word with Isaac and with Jacob, with Esau, and with um, Rebekah, right? 
And so he skillfully took them through their own scriptures to show them what they missed in their zeal in their zeal to see themselves beyond reproach, only to find themselves out in the rest of the world's in the rest of the world in, according to Paul's. You wonder why they killed the apostles and Jesus himself. This is why. This is the quintessential insult. Be careful about what things cause offense. Christ was an offense to them. The thing that causes offense, be careful about taking offense. It may not be a fault in the thing. It may be a fault in your thinking. Take care that the peace that you know is not a false peace and the security that you trust in is not a false security. To the Thessalonians, Paul wrote, for when they say peace and safety, that's when sudden destruction's coming. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Make certain, friends, that your ignorance is not bliss. If you're ignorant of something, it's perfectly well, it's even expected. We don't know everything. That means we, what we're ignorant of are the things we don't know. Ignorance is not really a bad word. It just means you don't know something. But be careful that your ignorance is not bliss. Now, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear about the gospel. I'm good. How many people have said that to you? Be careful that your ignorance is not bliss. Jesus said they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They didn't know the flood was coming. Their ignorance was bliss. But the flood came anyway. So much for the bliss. They suddenly got smart. Until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. He keeps saying that. We ought to expect it's going to come suddenly. It's going to come when we say, you know, I don't really have to worship God all the time. You know, remember when he said, be careful in the, that the Lord does not come in winter or on the Sabbath? I always wondered why he said that. You think he comes on the Sabbath and found the synagogues empty, he's going to be happy? Know that the truth shall set you free, but that there are many things that masquerade as truth and many other things that pass themselves off as being free. Peter said, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. People promise a lot of things. Be sure to discern the wisdom of the promiser. We see that the Jews missed the essential point of all that was revealed to them throughout the centuries. The whole point was Christ, and they missed it. It is the, probably the greatest tragedy in human history. No one could have been more meticulously set up to see that the firstborn male of his mother, a son of David, would be cast outside the city, would be crowned with thorns and bludgeoned and beaten, and finally killed, but his bones not broken, and his body disposed of before sundown. All of these things, it was preparing them for this divine appointment. And of all people, they missed it, and still do. Whenever I bring this up, that the sacrificial system, that the Lamb of God pointed right to Jesus Christ, people say, wow, I never thought of that. So the Jews missed the essential point of all that was revealed to them throughout the centuries. Be careful to remember that the knowledge we are given is not of our own doing. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So there it is. Grace is the gift, but boasting is the stumbling stone. If you're boasting about your grace... You haven't received it because you think you caused it. How do you boast about what someone else did? Glory in it. 
and give all the glory to God. Boasting is the stumbling stone. To receive God's grace is humility. To boast of receiving it is arrogance. When we, like Paul, look upon the sad situation of the Jews, we should not point the finger and think them foolish. We are as susceptible to trust in our own interpretations and conclusions about the things of God as they were. Take care that certainty does not become haughtiness. They stood there with the Savior teaching them and tried to trip him up in his teaching as though there was a prayer of doing it. Verses 30 through 32, Paul asks his question that he's asked repeatedly throughout these last chapters. What shall we say then? (laughs) What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. How do you suppose that happened? Even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They finally thought they would gain it for themselves. A first point I would make here is that this apostle is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He, at the same time, after a long and arduous conversation about the sovereignty of God, does not hesitate to insert the responsibility of man with regard to his own salvation. It's a paradox. God is sovereign, the cause of all things, but I'm responsible for rejecting him. God is sovereign, man is responsible. And Paul makes no bones about saying the two things, even in one sentence. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's sovereignty. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. That's responsibility. Paul's not unwilling to say both in the same sentence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. He says them both in the same sentence. Both are equally true. Both exist side by side in a proper theological understanding of salvation. In an argument about sovereignty... Men who stumble bring up the scriptures pertaining to choice. You ever notice that? In an an argument about sovereignty, men who stumble bring up scriptures pertaining to choice as though one word cancels out the other. Both are true. If we follow Paul's argument, if we follow his example, we can see that both exist, they coexist side by side in wonderful divine symmetry. The relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility has been labeled by some inexplicable, unable to be explained. And maybe it is. There are, however, some who make noble attempts to do so. And I'm going to treat you to some of those explanations today. I hope they help. I sometimes get into trouble with illustrations. Lorraine Bettner. Have you heard of Lorraine Bettner? Lorraine Bettner is a Midwestern... um, a Missouri man from the 1950s, 50s. Um, and uh, he was a Princeton theologian, one of the great minds. It's like reading Christian philosophy. He's so good for the soul. I su- suggest reading um, uh, Lorraine Bettner, um, Predestination and the Reformed Faith, I think is the name of the book I'm referring to. See, he's, he's a Puritan. He has a long name for, for a book. Bettner offers a plethora of illustrations to demonstrate the harmony of sovereignty and responsibility. How can they both work together? So I'm going to give you two of them. One, have you ever thought of this? Now, I've I've said this to you. I've said, don't get used to democracy because heaven is a kingdom and you don't get a vote. 
What is democracy? Democracy is government by consent of the governed. But really, it's government by consent of a majority of the governed, not all the governed, right? But when you get to heaven, it's an autocracy. There's one man in charge, Jesus Christ, right? But you know, it's also by consent of the government, of the governed rather, because no one would disagree with them. The two things work together in one. It's really a great illustration. So democracy is a government by by consent of the governed. Heaven, though, is not a democracy. Men have no vote in its policies. It's, in fact, an autocracy. However, in heaven, both the consent of the governed and the sovereignty of the governor coexist in perfect harmony. Why? Because there's no more sin. You see, you think because your sin, the responsibility went away. It's impossible for me to choose God. I'm, I'm totally depraved. That's too bad. You shouldn't have sinned then. No one in heaven would willingly vote against the loving po- policies of its governor, right? We're not going to say, you know, this thing about constant daytime, I kind of like the, you know, the day-night routine, Lord. Maybe we can get a referendum on that. That's not going to happen. Another is this, and this is pure Bettner. A man wishes to construct a building. I I know a little about that, right? Here you are. He has plans and meticulous drawings, and he hires carpenters, masons, plumbers, etc. to do the work. That's understandable, right? These men are not forced to do the work. When you hire a guy, you're not forcing him. You're inducing him, right? No compulsion of any kind is used to get these people to work. The owner simply offers the necessary inducements, and I'm quoting here, by way of wages, working conditions, and so on, so that the men work freely and gladly. They do in detail just what he plans for them to do. He is the primary, and theirs is the secondary will or cause for the construction of the building. But we already know what it's going to look like. It's already planned. It will be built, right? We often direct the actions of our fellow men without infringing on their freedom or responsibility. In a similar way, and to an infinitely greater degree, God can direct our actions. His will for the course of events is the primary cause, and man's will is the secondary cause, and the two work together in perfect harmony. Does that help? He also writes this. It is sometimes, again quoting, it is sometimes objected objected that unless man's will is completely free, God commands him to do what he cannot do. And that's true. You cannot believe in God, though you're commanded to. You cannot. He has to do something else, right? And you could complain about that. In numerous places in Scripture, Bettner writes, though, men are commanded to do things which in their own strength they're utterly unable to do. The man with the withered hand was commanded to stretch it forth. The paralytic was commanded to arise and walk. The sick man uh, to take up his bed and walk. The dead Lazarus was commanded to come forth. Men are commanded to believe, yet faith is said to be the gift of God. With each commandment, there has to be provision by God. Awake thou that sleepeth, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall shine upon thee. Ephesians 5.14 Ye therefore shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5.48 Man's self-imposed inability in the moral sphere does not free him from his obligation. That might not be as calming as you had hoped it would be, but there's the truth of it. Bettner writes with regard to free will, 
In his fallen state, a man has what we may call the freedom of slavery, right? You, can only, you can't serve God at all. You're serving a taskmaster, though. You are of your father, the devil. Sons of disobedience, aliens and strangers from the commonwealth of Israel. Remember the whole list of things that you're not? So to say we have free will, we could really say the freedom of slavery because we don't have the freedom to just do anything. He also said in another place that God handled really the lion's share of sovereignty when he stamped the nature of man on him. Just like you pretty much know what a horse is going to do because he's stamped with, with uh, horse genetics. You know what a dog's going to do. The darn thing's going to bark all the time because he's stamped with, he's stamped with dog genetics. He's created to be a dog, and a man's going to rebel because he's made in the image of God, and he thinks he's God, and he's in a fallen state, so he's already stamped with his nature. You know he's going to do the wrong thing. It's called sin. So man in his fallen state has what we may call the freedom of slavery. He is in bondage to sin and spontaneously follows Satan. Now that's good theology, right? He does not have the ability or incentive to follow God. Now we ask... Is this a thing worthy the, name, worthy the name free? And the answer is no. Not free will, but self-will, Bettner writes, would more appropriately describe man's condition since the fall. It is to be remembered that man was not created a captive to sin, but that he's come into that condition by his own fault. And a loss which he has brought upon himself does not free him from responsibility. Ask any lawyer. After man's redemption is complete, he will spontaneously follow God, as do the holy angels. But never will he become entirely his own master. We're never really free. We have one master, or we have another. Agreed? No amens on that. All right, I'll move on. Uh, Verse 33. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, as we've already looked into. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And so Paul returns to his concern over the tragic falling away of the Jews from the promises of God and the person of their Messiah. Why did they reject him? I can only answer that question by pointing out that in every way, from beginning to end, the Lord Jesus Christ was an offense to those who were waiting for their Messiah. I'm going to get into why. I think we all know the whys, but I'm going to give you an illustration first. This is not Bettner. This is me. All right? The Jews are out there, the smartest people, the smartest theologians on earth, the most um, literate people in human history. I've always given them that, right? Their children all the way down through the ages were all taught the scriptures, right? And so they knew their pedigree. They were sons of Abraham. They're the only ones that had all these gifts of God, the oracles of God, the word of God, the covenants, the prophets, the writings. What an awesome thing. To have all that and be special and separate from the world in that, right? And then the Christ comes and they miss it. How does that happen? I'm going to give you an illustration of what I think is the mechanism that causes that. Now, I knew a woman. She was a spiritual woman, sister in Christ. Loved her very much. Her husband came to Christ long after her, and so was a spiritual babe next to her. She knew the scriptures. He didn't. She was a long-time Christian. He was a new Christian. You've seen this, right? This isn't strange. She continually asked us for prayer that he would become 
the spiritual leader of their family as God commands him to be in the scripture. That is the role of men, right? So we prayed, and time went on. And after a while, the man really began to grow in faith. He became a very faithful, knowledgeable, responsible Christian man. You could turn to him for advice. He was wise. He could turn to the scriptures. He was coming to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But when he finally arrived at that very place and began to take his rightful prayed-for role as head of household, she wanted nothing to do with it. The wife would not accept her new subservient position. She didn't like it. She thought she would like it because it's God's will. But when it finally got there, she didn't like it. Submission was not a thing she had become accustomed to. I think that's kind of the thing that happened with the Jews. We kind of like being experts. We don't need some guy, some, this fellow they called him at one point, the carpenter's son from Nazareth coming and telling us, a man who has never studied, come and telling us what the scripture says. We don't need this. They couldn't relinquish control. It's hard. It's all because of pride and habit and things that are not good in us. So she rejected his leadership in every way. They remain married to this day, but she remained intransigent, and he, to preserve the marriage, submitted to her. You know, I, I think when you pray to God for something and he gives it to you, I think you have to take it. I don't think we can get into the habit of saying, no, thank you, God, I'll take another blessing, but not this one. Right? I don't think you want to walk past a bleeding Savior on a cross and say, I, I get it, but not today. Right? People say it all the time. They don't realize it. The marriage of Israel to God was like that. You know, the, the church is called the bride of Christ, but Israel was called the wife of God. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And you, you go, remember we talked about Hosea last week? He was told to marry a harlot, right? Um, that's a picture of Israel. And then, and then the harlot divorced him, but he was told to redeem the harlot, go to the slave market and buy her back. That's a picture. God is divorced from Israel pretty much literally. The marriage of Israel to God was much like the marriage of that woman. As soon as the one she prayed for came, she didn't receive it. Didn't want to be subservient. Everything from his ignominious birth to his bloody and embarrassing death was an offense to them. Though he was of royal stock, a son of David, he was not born to the socially elite. They had notions of a more glorious entrance into the world. It was always amazing to me that the quintessential philosopher king, David, the psalmist, the anointed by Samuel, he was the John the Baptist of the Old Testament, the conquering, the giant slayer, began as a sheep herder. They couldn't see that God sometimes does it that way. He started as a sheep herder. Neither his father, Jesse, nor Eliab, his brother, or any of the others could even consider him. He's like... I don't understand it. God said there was a son here. I went to seven of you, and I get nothing. Well, there is one more lad, but he's just a lad out in the field. And he's a stripling, meaning he's a young guy with no shirt on. And he's ruddy of complexion. He's red-faced, right? He's got rosacea. And so they, they go out there, and he goes, hit him! <laughs> you would think that they would take a clue. I don't know what was more offensive to the intellectual elite of the day, the fact that Jesus had no formal training or the fact that he claimed to be trained by God. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? 
Jesus answered and said to them, My doctrine is not mine, but him who sent me. <laughs> My doctrine is God's. I don't know where yours comes from. <laughs> the Messiah was believed by most to come in glory and splendor, conquering and to conquer. He would be recognized by the elite first, of course. Anointed by the high priest, Caiaphas would have come out and anointed him. They would have crowned him king, commissioned him by the Sanhedrin. He would gather an army. He would march against Rome. His glory and his splendor would be an obvious thing for all to see. (coughs) And then he came. What they did not recognize is that it was their own glory they were seeking. They were concerned about their own things and not the glory of God. It was their sin that he came to atone for, not just the sins of the Gentile. He didn't come to raise up the nation of Israel and destroy the Gentile nations. He just didn't come to do that. It was that Jesus went to the poor, the sinners, the sick. They envied his reception by the multitudes. They marveled at his ability to heal. They saw him heal. They knew he could heal. They knew he raised Lazarus from the dead. Go back to John chapter 11. The Pharisees were there. They recoiled at his teaching and his self-exaltation in such teachings as, you have heard it said in the scriptures, but I say, and he makes an amendment. They were like much of the world today. Facts, reality, and unarguable truths are esteemed less than some obtuse form of human credential. I heard one lady in the bleachers at a swim meet complain about a transgender male winning all the races. You know about this, right? It's unfair for a man to compete. And a woke bystander countered her with this. How can you say he's not a woman? Are you a doctor? And she said, no, I'm not a veterinarian either, but I know a dog when I see one. (laughs) That really happened. That was a grassroots thing. I, I saw the clip of it. I'm surprised you taken by surprise. That was on, in the news, of, I don't know, a year or so ago. Now, I'm, a veterinar- I'm not a veterinarian either, but I know a dog when I see one. Um, and so, so there was the claim of the virgin birth, friends. It was clearly spoken of in Isaiah, in Micah, clearly, as clear as it could be. There was the fact that his low family standing stood in the way of them seeing the glory. There was his obvious wisdom and popularity that rivaled that of the elite. There was his power and his promises of salvation and his pronouncements of wrath. Oh, this carpenter's pronouncing wrath on me. I'll show him wrath. Crucify him. There was his denouncing of faithless Israel. Surely all of these things became a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling to them. But most of all, it was the cross, friends. It was the guilt and shame of Roman torture. It was the curse of the cross, for cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy. Paul reiterated it in Galatians. His display of weakness, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. He allowed himself to be mocked and ridiculed, beaten, cursed, and spat upon. A fate all too insulting for a Messiah to endure. He became the quintessential insult to human pride. Here he is, bloodied on a cross. All those who followed him left him. They cried out for the criminal instead of the Savior. And he still said, you must believe on me. What arrogance. That's all they saw. They said he saved others. He cannot save himself. 
Lloyd-Jones writes this, he hits them at their most sensitive point, pride. Pride of intellect, pride of morality, pride of good works, pride of achievement, pride of understanding. Take pride in all those things. Finally, it was the gospel that was the rock of offense and the stone of stumbling. To be told that the cross of shame was the only hope for the human soul was too much for the religious establishment to bear. It was too much then, and things have not changed. He died for their sin. That was the ultimate insult. You died for my, you paid for my sin. First of all, what sin? And who would accept you as payment for mine? This is how they looked at him. And so the last nail in the coffin was human pride. And so we're left with only two paths to choose from. We may stumble at the gospel or we may believe it. Which will you do? We may stumble or we may embrace. Lloyd-Jones writes again, and I'll end with his words, May the terrible lesson of the Jewish nation awaken anybody who may have been doubtful. May God open your eyes and show you the folly, the tragedy, the enormity in regarding God's own Son and his perfect glorious work as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. May God have mercy on us all. Amen. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would show us the truth inwardly, that our intellectual pride would not trip us up, O Lord, that we would not be the judges of one another and the small things, Father, and that we might recognize the glory of the Savior and the greatness of his message to us. We call the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.